Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Last week, if you were here, I was talking about real theology and someone asking me whether we were doing real theology because it was trendy, fun, challenging, and necessary, a connection to culture, and I said, yes, it is all of that. It is all of that. It is trendy, fun, challenging, necessary, and a connection to culture. And I said that it's like holding the iPhone in one hand and the Bible in the other, or a movie in one hand and the Bible in the other. And our job is to put on the theological lens, which we all have, whether we wear purple glasses or not. We come into a church or a religious setting to say, what is the theological understanding of what we are witnessing as we hold a movie and we hold our scriptures together? How do they come together? Because I believe actually that's our job. Our job is to be theological reflectors. If someone says, why do you go to church? It's because I'm a theological reflector. I'm seeking to make connections. The movie American Fiction was chosen because it's February and it's Black History Month. And it is important for us to hear and see and know in this month in particular, the stories, movies, and books of black people who shared their story and their perspective. It isn't tokenism, I don't think. I think that we are seeking to say, hey, in this month, we are going to pay attention uniquely to these stories. American uh, fiction, is a dramedy. I've never heard that phrase before. But it's a story of a black man named Monk, who's an academic from Boston, an upper-class author, who struggles because the stories he tells are not selling. And his boss tells him, time to take a break and go be with your family, which he says, that is the worst idea ever if you want to help me. But nonetheless, there's a whole story and stories that could be told about his family. But on his way, as he leaves Boston, he hears the telling of a black female author whose books are selling. You heard her at the beginning. She is writing a story that people want to hear. It's the story of shootings and poverty and crime, just the way we know it is. We want that story, they are told. And he wrestles with the fact that his stories are not being heard and sold, but hers are. And so he decides he's going to play the game and he creates an own new name for himself, Stag Lay. And he begins to tell this story of black people writing now not about academia or poetry, but about the black story of crimes, of murder, of poverty, just the way we all know it really is. And suddenly he's offered $750,000 for his book and he's going, oh my God, I didn't even mean this. He changes the name to the F word, which becomes the title. And he says it, hoping they're going to deny it. And he's sure they're not going to pick up the title. And sure enough, they say, well, that's exactly the right title for you people, is it not? And so that becomes the book that suddenly goes viral. And he begins to tell this story, and he can't believe what he is seeing with his own eyes as he stereotypically speaks about the black story of violence and crime and bloodshed and shootings, just like the white people want to stand up and say, yes, that's the story. The movie is incredibly funny because you see yourself in it. You see yourself as a white person 
with the stereotypes, witnessing it, and seeing the movie make fun of us. So what are the theological connections? I have to begin with a disclaimer. It's odd to have a white elder man and a white older man, privileged white male, stand here and talk about this movie, but I just gotta say that's who I am and I speak my voice in this place, that I'm not speaking for anyone here but myself when I speak. And just to, at the beginning, say to you that there's a whole different kind of theology lenses we wear. There is actually a black theology and people of color write their story, their perspective from the black lens, just as there are feminist writers who put on their lens and speak from the female lens as they look at the biblical stories, just as there are liberation theology people who write with their understanding in Central America about what liberation means when you live in oppression. So we have these different lenses we put on when we come into places like this, and we put those lenses on to help us see better. Not necessarily to offer us the stereotype, but actually to crack it open and invite us to hear and see another voice because we all come into this place with our own assumptions. So I say that as a disclaimer and recognize that there is indeed a black theology which I have studied and which I am learning to be more familiar with all the time. So what does this movie say? I believe this movie calls us to a wider lens, to bigger glasses, to a different way of seeing the world. And I see this most fully in Paul's writing when he says these words, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I put, become an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Now I see in a mirror dimly, then I shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know more fully. You see, all of the theologies are inviting us to see differently, to put on different lenses, to see the multiplicity of the ways in which we might see ourselves and the world. As I said last week, the main goal of religion, Richard Rohr says, is to help people reconnect with their truest self. The whole reason we are here is to reconnect to our truest self, which is already there. It's about seeing ourselves and others and a movie with the eyes that see us as the beloved that we are no matter what someone has said or done to us. It is about seeing and knowing more fully. The second thing this movie is, is to recognize that as Gord said, we other people all the time. As humans, we have a tendency to other people we don't know, to create a separation between others we do not know by providing labels or stereotypes or seeing them as not me. They would say, theologians, they would say that the greatest illusion we have is that there's a separation between us and the other. And this separation is what we call sin. Because there is really no separation between us. Yes, we're all different and diverse, but it's human to human, human to human. 
The othering is a way in which we tend to say, they're over there, they're a person of color, they're male, they're straight, they're gay, they're old, they're young, they're black, they're rich, they're poor, they're educated, they're uneducated. And all the labels that we quickly place on each other is what we would call othering. And this movie reflects how this is part of our human culture to other people. We have prejudice, all of us. We all have racism. We are all prejudiced in that we prejudge someone without knowing their particular story. It's easy to do to prejudge others and separate it because it creates an order for us to live in that puts people where we want them in their place so that there is separation between us. It's easy to other people because it means you don't have to change when you've othered people. As I thought about this story in this sermon, I thought about my own homophobia. I thought about my own homophobia and the story goes back to when I was 22 years old. In the year 1982, I traveled around the world with a high school friend. We had finished our BA, we saved our money and we began a year long tour of the world hitchhiking. And we began in New Zealand. In that country in 1982, we hitched. And of the 20, 60 nights I was there, I stayed in six, 26 different homes with people I'd never met. Almost half the time I stayed with people in homes that I didn't know. They all talked about when you picked up, that when you were picked up by them about the one accident that happened 15 years ago as though it was yesterday. But I was picked up and driven as we hitched around our country. But I remembered this particular day in New Zealand. We were picked up by a guy who was single, driving a blue station wagon. And when we walked to get in the car, I looked in the back of the station wagon, there was all kinds of stereo equipment. As we took our ride, he said, I'm going to a hotel and you're welcome to stay with us if you like. And we thought, great, we got a bed to stay tonight. He said, it's also got laundry, you're welcome to your laundry. Yes, we'll do our laundry. So when we got to the hotel, my friend Kirk took all of our laundry and went to put it in the laundry. And as he was doing this, the person I was with who picked us up said, by the way, if you haven't figured it out, I'm gay. And I literally stood there and went, oh my God, what do we do now? And I literally tried to go over and find Kirk and say, get the laundry, get the laundry, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And Kirk said, it's okay, we'll stay, we'll be okay. We came back to the room and I tried to pretend like nothing was bothering me at all. And he said, I'll take you out for dinner. And I'm like, oh no, I don't think we want, y'all will go, right, we'll go for dinner. And then after dinner, he said, we're in New Plymouth. I want to take you to the, the peak in this town and show you. And I'm thinking, great, we're on our way to get mugged and beat up and we're going to be killed. And we drove all the way up and I'm clinging to the side of the door, sure that I've got to jump out at any time. And all these stories are going through my mind. We got back to the hotel room that night and we took all of our bags and I put them against the door because I was sure this person was coming after me. I lied awake all night long, for sure not gonna sleep. We got up in the morning and he said, would you like me to take you to breakfast? And we're like, sure. And sure enough, we went to breakfast and at the end of that, he shook our hands and said, see you later. And in that day, I had so many prejudgments so many fears, so many labels that were all completely false. But the story gets better because Kirk, 10 years later, tells me that he's gay. 
My high school friend tells me that he is gay. And I married he and Rob 20 years ago in Vancouver. And they've been together 20 years. We laugh about that story. And he surely laughs at me in that story. Do you see how out of our own ignorance and our own prejudice that we label someone we don't know in such a way? And the horrific things that we think and the things we say because we just don't know and the othering has put us in that place. And so it's the seeing the other. You saw in the scripture, in Christ there'll be no more male or female, Greek or Jew, black or slave, all are free, all are one in Christ. Or in Matthews, the call is to love, to see the Christ in our midst. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. When did you do that? When you did it unto me, Jesus says, to see that there is no otherness, there is only oneness. You see, that's the challenge to wonder, who am I othering right now? Number three, pay attention to what's really going on, as Gord said. Pay attention to see most differently, to recognize our shadow, which is at work. You see, we each project on other people through our false self, what we think they are, or who we think we are to the world. Richard Rohr defines shadow this way, and we all have it. Our shadow is what you refuse to see about yourself and what you do not want other people to see. Behind me, well, not because of these lights, but here's my shadow, it's behind me. And all of us have a shadow, this part of us that we don't want anybody to know. And often we live out of it, often most often in anger. And we need to ask ourselves, who am I really? What am I hiding? What am I putting on somebody else to drag them down? And who am I really going to trust? You see, that's what we do from our shadow. And the shadow usually bites us in the butt. The question we have to say is, what is it about them that I don't like, that I'm angry about, that I call out? And when we have values in this church like hospitality, spirituality, social justice, and risk, are we really, when we say that, how are we going to live fully and honestly into those values? We all have a shadow, and our work is to do that shadow work. Sometimes our shadow is unconscious and we don't even know it. This is another classic family story. In my family, my other better friend, Clayton Johnston, who lives in Vancouver and Island, we were young together in our 20s, and Clayton went off to be a teacher in Bahamas, and he met a girl named Peggy, and he was gonna marry her, so he brought her back to Canada. And here we were sitting at our cottage at this table, and Peggy had decided to make a Bahamian fish dish. And so we sat at the table, my father, a United Church minister, and Clayton's another United Church minister. And as we sat at the table, my father says out loud, oh, Peggy, you must have been slaving over this all day long. He ate in quiet. And then Clayton's dad said, dad said, all we need is someone to sing Old Man River, a song about Mississippi and racism in the 1930s, totally unaware 
totally unaware, unconscious, because I'm sure they were both saying, don't say anything racist, don't say anything racist, and they said something racist. You see, our unconscious is when we say things from our shadow that we dare not say, but we do. It's about paying attention, paying attention to who we are, who's within us and behind us. Following upward, Richard Rohr writes this, the movement in the second half of life wisdom has much to do with necessary shadow work and the emergence of a healthy self-critical thinking, which allows us to see beyond our own shadow and disguise and to find out who you are, hidden with Christ in God. The self cannot die. It always lives, and it is your truest self. And that's why Jesus said this. Why is it you take the plank out of your own eye, and when you take the plank out of your own eye, you'll be able to see the speck in your neighbor's eye? Because we're hypocrites. We need to continually do this. Finally, I want to say this movie and racism for me invites us not to so much our head but to our heart, which is where the arts lie. That in these troubled times we are living in, it is the arts that save us and provide a bond. Whether it is the arts of worship, like the songs of scripture, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 139, O oh God, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you are still with me when I wake up. Or the song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or maybe it's in, not in the scriptures, but in the music, like my favorite hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, a line that always gets me, demands my life, my soul, my all. Or Amazing Grace, a beautiful hymn about a person who was a slave trader and suddenly realizes they've been a slave trader and writes the song, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now have found that beautiful song from a slave trader. It's salve. Just like on Friday night when Con Nickel got up and, and sang the song by Blue Rodeo, Lost, reminding us when we're lost, we are not lost if we are together. You see, in this cultural crisis, it is arts and music that speak truth to us. When I was in Nicaragua in a war in 1986, it was Bruce Coburn. I literally put my earbuds in. Well, they didn't have them back then, but you know, those things you put in your ear. And if I had a rocket launcher, his song saved me and kept me in the war. When 9-11 happened, I remember our culture listened to the Beatles' Imagine song over and over and over again. Imagine no religion. When I went through a breakup in the year 2000, Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah played over and 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 over again as salvation. In 1989, when the young Chinese man stood against the tanks in Tiananmen Square, he became a symbol to me of Jesus standing before violence as he went before the anti-democracy tanks. Or perhaps it's poetry given to me by Doug Schroeder this week. Poetry that speaks, as Andrea says, uh, what do you say, scripture is what poetry, or is what, 
Here it is. Poetry is what theology wishes it be. Here's Rumi. Because it's beyond our head. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down on the grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other. Each other, other. Doesn't make sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Good religion doesn't let you sleep. It's the imagination and the arts that we need in these days, and they are what help us heal and be grounded, to be calm and courageous. Yesterday, I was at Grace Presbyterian Church, and Richard Topping, the principal, was talking about the imagination and preaching. And he talked about the importance of Scripture being about imagination and dreaming. And there's a song that he referenced, and I'm going to show it to you to hear right now by John Legend. It's called Preach. The idea behind the song is that sometimes we can't get so frustrated by the news in the world and what's going on. We don't know what to do. Some people sit back disengaged and ignore the world, or some do something about it. And he sings in this song, I can't sit and hope, I can't just sit and pray. And he sings this song speaking about gun violence in America. And he says, whenever a massacre occurs, a politician says, we send our hope and prayers to the victims and the families and then do nothing. John says, I learned in Sunday school, you gotta love your neighbor even if they're not your blood. I guess this is why we have to take what we say and sing into the world in transformation. Here's the song and the question of the day. What do you hear in this song? I invite you for one minute to somebody near you. What did you hear? What did you know in that song or sermon? You got one minute. Thank you. I know you're not done. I know you're not done. We're never done. In the world. Thank you for listening. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.